Welcome to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. I'm joined today by Jason Weiner. Good morning, Nathan. Great to be here. Jason is a great co-op lawyer in the area and has been a a regular co-host of this show. We join you the fourth Thursday of every month to learn about economic democracy and cooperative business. The Co-op Power Hour is a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle, which you can learn more about at our website, coloradocoops.info. Today we're talking about uh, a subject that's been of, of growing interest to me and I think to a lot of people around the country. It's, it's community internet, uh, forms of developing uh, access to the internet that are grounded in accountability to the people that they serve. This includes models like municipal uh, broadband providers like we've got in our area in, in Longmont and a few other places, as well as cooperative businesses that provide uh, internet access to their members. And we've got some really interesting examples around the state, and we'll also uh, turn to models around the country as well. We'll be joined by Vince Kropp, who's the CEO and general manager of PC Telecom, which is a rural uh, cooperative broadband provider in northeast Colorado, as well as Hannah Trossel, who will help us see some of the broader national context. She's a research associate at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Now, I think one of the reasons that this issue has come up um, uh, in a big way in recent months has been the debate about net neutrality. Uh, uh, Recently, the FCC in Washington voted to end the protections uh, for net neutrality that have been in place since the Obama administration. And, and, and what this means is that now internet providers are no longer obligated to treat every piece of data the same, you know, to, to treat uh, and to provide uh, 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 equal speeds and, and accessibility, whether your data is, you know, text from a, a news website or video on Netflix. Um, and, uh, and so much more, whether that information is coming from the right side of the political spectrum or the left side of the political spectrum. Now, uh, the, the removal of these protections has um, gotten people thinking, well, if the government's not going to protect us from these big uh, internet providers, companies like Comcast and AT&T, some of the, the most disliked companies in the entire country, maybe we need to, to develop um, internet service for ourselves. And, and, and Colorado has actually already been a leader in this, as um, more than 100 jurisdictions have opted out of the statewide ban on community broadband, uh, opening the door for more um, local, uh, uh, lo- local initi- initiatives. Um, including a recent uh, 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 approval process in Boulder, and as well as Fort Collins, where um, where Comcast and its allies led a really expensive campaign to fight uh, uh, the push for p- community broadband. Um, we've got initiatives going on around the state, um, drawing on uh, a long history of community utilities, uh, especially through co-ops. Uh, as well as um, as well as some small experience like the Magnolia Road Internet Cooperative uh, up the hills uh, uh, on the way to Netherland from Boulder, where a bunch of neighbors just got together about 15 years ago and and built their own internet provider. It's a pretty amazing thing, and we've got a lot of models to draw on. 
Nathan, this is really an interesting time. Um, just several months ago, Governor Hickenlooper announced his pick to lead the Colorado Broadband Office. And so it's not only important to think about the impact of the net neutrality repeal on existing utilities and existing ISPs, but also as an increasing number of rural communities gain high-speed broadband access, it will be super important that they have um, mo- that they have some options in terms of the business model for that last mile service and to re-empower rural communities um, as they gain a foothold in, in the 21st century uh, internet economy. Absolutely. And on that note, uh, uh, we'll uh, call up our first guest, uh, Vince Kropp. Thank you, Vince, for joining us. Vince Kropp is the CEO and general manager of PC Telecom, a cooperatively owned telecom company based in uh, Colorado here. Thanks for joining us today, Vince. You bet. Glad to join you. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of PC Telecom? It looks like it uh, goes quite a ways back and straddles a number of technological epochs, and it would be really interesting to hear uh, how you've come to where the co-op is today. Sure. So uh, a little history on PC Telecom. Uh, Yeah, we were formed as a cooperative in uh, 1906, so I guess we've been uh, operating as a co-op in Colorado for a little over 110 years, I guess. And um, basically the, uh, the mission for uh, and our parent company is uh, Phillips County Telephone Company, uh, which is the cooperative. Uh, the mission was to provide telephone services uh, to the members out here in, in Holyoke, Colorado, and, and the surrounding area. Of course, prior to that, there there were no services, and and uh, living out here in the far reaches of Northeast Colorado, you know, the the bigger guys, uh, you know, did not. Uh, set up nor appear to have plans to set up shop out here. And so it was a story similar to what happened with rural electric cooperatives where where people who didn't have access to electricity had to set up their own uh, their own electric cooperatives. And we've talked about that a bit on the show in the, in the past, but uh, it's there was a similar initiative around uh, telecom services, around phone access. Is that is that right? Was it a similar kind of story, or did it play out uh, differently than with the electric co-ops? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would, I would say the story is, is quite similar. Um, you know, of course, there was the... Um, I'm not real familiar with the electric side of it, but I think there was an actual act that um, kind of established that to kind of get that in, in move moving. Whereas uh, the telephone cooperatives, I think, just kind of set themselves up to fill in the needs. So um, I don't back in the early 1900s. I don't know it was quite as organized, but uh, certainly very similar movements. Yeah. Tell, uh, tell us a bit about the services that PC Telecom offers its members today, day-to-day. Okay. Um, yeah, so basically PC Telecom provides voice, video, and data, with voice being telephone service and data primarily being Internet service. Uh, we also are one of the founding members of Colorado Communications Transport, where a group of companies similar to us went together and formed a, a fiber optic ring out in northeast Colorado to get connectivity to Denver. And so together with uh, CCT, we provide 
uh, Ethernet services to uh, wireless carriers and other large businesses. Uh, and, and basically, Ethernet is is a, a way of connecting uh, business to business with, with large uh, uh, capacity connections. What's the general composition of your membership in terms of homes, businesses, um, and heavy users? So we're probably about 80% residential and 20% business. And then, you know, I, I think probably similar to most of these uh, rural communities out here where, you know, you you have a few uh, anchor institutions like uh, schools and hospitals that, um, you know, the, some of the larger businesses that um, need some of those bigger connections. And what was it like setting up the physical infrastructure in a relatively remote part of the state, that last mile service, uh, that comes up quite a bit. Uh, any stories about what that was like, either laying the fiber or connecting um, to this uh, fiber ring that you spoke of? You know, we've we've done strategic planning for, oh, I don't know, I'd say probably since the late 90s when it became apparent that the telecommunications landscape was was certainly going to be evolving. And, you know, one of our missions, of course, was to provide telecommunication services. And as services have started evolving from telephony-centric type services to Internet-based services, uh, we recognize the, the need for increasing capacity and, and speeds for our members. So in the uh, early 2000s, I think it was around 2006, we applied for a rural utility service loan and um, and obtained that loan. And so I think it was in 2007 we started installing fiber optics with the goal of, of uh, taking fiber optics to every, every member within our um, regulated footprint at the time. And... Um, and then within, oh, I'd say probably shortly after 2010, we um, we completed that where basically all, all of our members in our original co-op area are uh, connected via fiber optics. I'm jealous. Um, <laughs> can you can, can you say a bit about what that has done for the for the community? What role uh, broadband broadband access has uh, for the members that you serve? Uh, sure. So it's, um, you know, as you know, and as, as I guess we, we hear about um, some in the, in the press these days about how critical it is to have a good Internet connection, um, it's so important from, you know, basically a, practically all facets of our lives um, touch the Internet in, in some way. And so a good, reliable connection is, is so important um, that, you know, I, I think w since our members have, um, uh, have had it since 2010 timeframe, um, you know, I guess no news sometimes is, is good news, right? Uh, we, we don't hear too much of a, out of our membership about, um, needing to upgrade that. Uh, we, we do certainly hear from some neighboring areas who, who don't have that and, uh, you know, basically they um, want to either improve their the speeds that they can access or maybe improve the reliability. And, and we have actually 
branched out into a couple of neighboring communities. We, uh, I mentioned we, we provide video, and uh, uh, we bought a video system back in the mid-2000s as well. And so we do provide cable modem service in a couple of these outlying areas and um, are, are trying to push fiber optics deeper uh, into those communities. And, um, uh, you know, where they haven't had the robust connections, uh, we, we certainly probably hear more about it there and, and the need to upgrade it and improve the reliability there as well. Now, I, I, I'm in a place where I don't have a whole lot of choice about providers, and it's a, it's a, uh, the, the, the option is uh, one of these big companies that, um, you know, one of the biggest companies in the country that nobody really likes. Can you tell me a bit about the difference uh, between the experience I have there with uh, what your members are, 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 um, are getting? What's the difference between uh, uh, getting service from a big national monopoly and a regional cooperative like yours? Well, as, as far as the core Internet service, I, I think it's, you know, uh, I think that the service itself is probably similar. Um, you know, gigabit service today is kind of the gold standard, and, uh, you know, we were one of the, the first rural areas within Colorado to, to start providing gigabit service a couple of years ago, and, and you know, gigabit service is now, uh, you can uh, uh, get that service in, in many areas throughout the country today. Not everywhere, but it, it's starting to be more prevalent. Um, so I think that the service itself is probably comparable. I think the difference that we can make is um, more personal touch. Um, you know, our our folks here, and, and it's part of the co-op story as well, too, I think, uh, is that, you know, our, our members, every member here, uh, probably knows where to find any mem- um, service technician or employee of, of PC Telecom, as, as well as myself. Um, you know, we we interact at the downtown, at the stores, at the grocery store. Um, they, they know where to find us. So if, if there's a problem, they, they uh, certainly can find us. And, um, you know, I guess we kind of pride ourselves on, on being able to uh, address problems uh, quickly and, and certainly try to be proactive about um, addressing problems and, and issues as they unfold. That seems like such an idyllic uh, notion to be able to... <laughs> so you don't have to spend hours and hours on the phone with somebody from the other side of the world. <laughs> so... <laughs> that, that's certainly the aim. You know, <laughs> occasionally, um, uh, you know, uh, problems come up and, um, you know, but we, we, we certainly... You know, no service is perfect, but uh, um, we, we can certainly try it, strive to be the best we can, for sure. Tell us a little bit more about the relationship that PC Telecom has with its members in terms of voting and governance. How involved are the members, and how often do you get together and hammer out matters of, of policy or uh, infrastructure? What is that relationship like? Of course, every year the, the co-op uh, has an, an annual meeting where um, the, the members come to the annual meeting and and have a, a chance to, uh, every year, at least one director's position is up for election. So it's really, that's, um, you know, it's, it's the co-op story, right? Uh, you know, the, the opportunity to 
uh, influence the operations of the company or when the uh, membership elects their representative onto the board. And uh, certainly, it's not the only opportunity to interact, but um, probably the most obvious is at that annual meeting when they elect their representative. And and then certainly throughout the year, um, um, you know, board members are, are certainly contacted as well as far as, uh, you know, if, if um, a service issue or, or something that needs attention um, rises up, um, members can certainly contact them as well. So there's certainly a representation there as well. Now, one thing I'd love to hear from you about is, is you know, we've been seeing a lot of news about the relationship between the really big uh, national telecoms and the FCC policies that have been shifting uh, in this administration. I wonder if you could offer a bit of your perspective as a uh, a regional provider. How do how does this uh, kind of shifting policy landscape affect you? I don't see it having a a huge impact on us. I, I don't know that we're really going to change our operations a lot as a result of of um, you know. Uh, net neutrality ruling, uh, you know, we will probably continue to operate pretty much the same way. You know, one one thing that that ruling does do is um, uh, certainly asks providers such as us, as as well as all carriers, you know, to uh, to, to disclose uh, their network management practices. You know, whether we're doing any blocking of any sites, which we certainly have no intent of, of blocking or throttling any services or um, prioritization at, at this point. You know, some some of the, the bigger guys, I suppose, um, you know, I mentioned that we have, have video. It's a, certainly a small piece of our operation today. But some of the big guys, uh, I'd say probably, um, probably most of them actually, I do provide video service. So one example of how that may play out is um, they may prioritize their own traffic, um, but if they do, they they need to um, let their let their subscribers know that. So, um, you know, I, I guess as long as uh, everyone plays by um, the the correct disclosure rules, it um, hopefully folks don't see a change, and then they certainly won't in our area for sure. Vince, this has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about um, a business model in telecom service that many of our listeners may not be as familiar with. We thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. Uh, uh, enjoyed the opportunity. Thank you. That was Vince Krop, CEO and General Manager of PC Telecom, a regional telecommunications and ISP provider in Northeast Colorado. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider, joined by Jason Weiner. We'll be with you on the fourth Thursday of every month, and in a few minutes, we'll be back with Hannah Trossel. Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider again. I teach at CU Boulder, joined by Jason Weiner, a local co-op lawyer. 
uh, and an advocate. And uh, now we're joined by Hannah Trossel, uh, who's a research associate with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, which is a fantastic organization that does research about different forms of uh, local enterprise and, and uh, self-management. Uh, they look at energy policy as well as communications policy and uh, uh, really are leaders in the growing uh, movement against monopoly power in this country. And, and Hannah in particular has been doing some fantastic research about the uh, options and opportunities for, uh, for community-based uh, broadband service around the country. So Hannah, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Now, the ILSR maintains a map of community networks around the country, uh, and you can people can find that on your website. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what that map looks like right now? How you see the kind of state of the um, of the uh, community broadband uh, landscape looking? Yeah, the community networks map um, shows all of the community networks that we have followed so far. Um, we have cable networks, um, fiber to the home networks, some fixed wireless. We're currently adding any communities served by cooperatives to the map. So that's going to be our um, big next step. And, and what, are the, um, what are the areas of strength? Uh, what are the... Um, what are the areas in the country that have been less well served by community networks? Can you give us a sense of, of uh, uh, what we're looking at, what we have to, to work on, to build with right now? Yeah. The, well, let me back up a moment. I just want to say that there are a lot of networks in the Midwest. There are a lot of networks in the Southeast and a lot of networks in um, Washington. The trick there is simply that there are state barriers in place that prevent new networks from being formed. Um, specifically, I'm thinking North Carolina. There are some barriers in Michigan, some in Missouri. Each state has their own specific way of trying to protect tax dollars. And in some cases, they don't see community networks as a good investment even though they are. And so these are cases yeah. where in, often the, the large telecom, the, you know, the, the CenturyLinks, the, the Comcast, um, lobbied for the states to actually prevent them to, uh, from uh, allowing local jurisdictions to create uh, municipal providers, right? Uh, uh, saying, look, if we're going to get competition from local governments, we're not going to invest in your community. So state, if you want us to invest in your state, uh, uh, we uh, ask that you um, that you restrict this kind of an, uh, uh, municipal uh, uh, service provision. Is that is that about right? Yeah, exactly. And so there's this disconnect between what's actually happening on the ground in the state, where people can't get good internet service, and what people at the um, legislature is actually hearing. What's the case that you make to policymakers about the importance of community broadband uh, among the options available? Um, not that there are many, but what's what's your central premise as to why community broadband is, so, is such an important option in the landscape? It's because it's democratically controlled. It's controlled by the people who are actually using the network. They know what they need for their community. And 
they know what kind of internet service will actually work. Um, and so that's why I specifically focus on cooperative networks. Um, they're more likely to serve rural areas. Um, they are controlled by their members. Um, we have several examples of new network, new co-ops being formed in order to provide internet service. It's a really exciting. Are there any interesting anecdotes you can share about a, a frustrated community that launches into its own initiative? Yeah, there's actually, um, I spoke with someone over in Michigan. Um, Alband Communications Co-op was actually formed because a man could not get um, telephone service. And at the time, it was in the uh, late 90s, um, it caused a lot of problems in the community. They didn't have 911 service. He just gathered together um, several of his neighbors. He used a um, phone that was in basically a gas station um, to talk to a local uh, college about how to build a telephone co-op from the ground up. And when they were doing that, they actually built out a fiber-to-the-home network um, to provide high-speed internet service, some of the fastest in the country, um, to these houses that previously, like just um, just a few years before they started the project, couldn't get even a telephone. That's amazing. And it, I think it's a reminder of a phenomenon where we've been taught uh, by the big monopoly companies that this is something only that they can do. Uh, and that that providing internet is this kind of magical power that only a monopoly uh, a monster uh, corporation can have and and you know I've, I've run into a number of examples like what you're describing you know uh, I mentioned earlier on the show the Magnolia Road Internet Cooperative here in Boulder County and it was again a group of neighbors who you know a number of years ago weren't getting the internet service they wanted and you know that they had some engineers among them some people with a few special Specialized skills, but uh, uh, with with that and and trying out some different technologies and different devices, uh, they were able to um, uh, to set up their own system. And you know, they they now even keep their equipment like in a storage uh, uh, container in you know in, in North Boulder. It's pretty amazing. You know, it's just like the container that someone might use to keep an extra sofa uh, is where they keep all their all their uh, equipment to keep the internet going for a whole neighborhood uh, uh, in the county. So it's um, this stuff is you know complicated and highly technical, but at the same time, it's not so out of reach for uh, uh, for ordinary people that we can't learn how to. Uh, 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 to some degree, manage and, and build our, our own networks. Exactly. And it's even easier with existing electric and telephone co-ops because since they're already um, functioning as utilities, they already have a lot of the expertise needed and they already have that community control. Everyone, in, um, everyone just knows who their co-op is um, and how they... So they, there's an implicit trust. There's already um, there's already that groundwork laid. It's not just a few strangers getting together being like, oh, we can provide internet service. 
it's already a community institution. Yeah, and 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 I think it also helps with um, with with local leaders, you know, seeing the uh, the um, possibility of something like this. I mean, I, I think I remember hearing on your uh, the ILSR's podcast, uh, Building Local Power. Um, you or one of your colleagues was talking about how. Um, in communities that have these existing co-op or municipal utilities, um, it just doesn't sound so crazy to think that we might extend that utility service to uh, to internet. Whereas in a community that's used to getting everything from a big company, that just sounds kind of um, shocking and uh, and otherworldly. Yeah, actually, that reminds me of um, a fight we had in Minneapolis. Um, it was on the energy side. Um, we were considering like municipalizing an electric, the electric utility. And it just seemed totally absurd to um, a lot of Minneapolis residents because they'd always got their service from a big monopoly provider. And then they were amazed to learn about how many um, cities around the country have municipal electric service. It's just a matter of um, people changing their perspective just a little bit, and as soon as they recognize the possibilities, they're really on board. Um, and that's really what we're seeing in the electric co-op space as far as um, providing internet service now. Um, just back in like 2011, 2012, this seemed um, a little uh, a little far-fetched for these co-ops to provide high-speed internet service. They hadn't really changed what they had done in, in years. Let's... And now we're seeing over 60 electric co-ops with fiber, with internet service projects. And we're expecting so many more um, in the near future. Let's drill into that a little bit. What are some of the main obstacles that these new initiatives are facing? What's the dynamic with respect to the existing provider or the big telecom companies um, that either surround the area or might be thinking about offering service in that area or may pro provide service in that area currently and the residents want, want an option, another option. So what are the main obstacles? So the main obstacles really um, tend to be the amount of capital that you have to put up just up front in order to get a network going. Um, some electric co-ops have found ways around that um, because they've been investing in smart grids. So they have fiber to some of their like electrical substations and they already have started building that infrastructure. Um, another main obstacle is the community buy-in. If the community doesn't imagine getting their internet service from their electric co-op, it can be really difficult. That's sort of, is a difference between the electric and telephone co-ops. Um, telephone co-ops have been involved in providing internet service for um, years because of um, DSL, um, because that's just how um, communication spaces worked. It was, you went from telephone to internet service. It seems like a huge leap to go from electric to internet service. And so once you get the community on board, and oftentimes it's the, the small businesses really recognizing how much improved connectivity would help their business, um, then 
those barriers can start to disappear. Now, there are some states that also um, put specific barriers on access to capital um, through um, through different programs, but um, those are those are smaller. Um, it's, it's less of a barrier. Um, Tennessee had one, and they recently um, got rid of it, and so now we're seeing more interest from the electric co-ops in Tennessee. And where does Colorado fit into that map? It seems like there's a lot going on here, um, and you know, every election cycle, there's another uh, jurisdiction that's opting out of the state ban on on municipal broadband. Um, I, you're you're sitting outside of Colorado. What is uh, what does the activity in this state look like from there? There there are quite a few um, co-ops in Colorado providing fiber service. Um, there's actually um, DMEA, um, Delta Monstros Electric Association. Um, they have Elevate Fiber. Um, that's their uh, big project. Um, I think their first phase covered about seven to 10,000 people um, with Fiber to the Home. And they were initially um, a, little, a little hesitant, but they really came on board once the once the community got very excited about it. Um, Colorado, as far as municipal networks, has a state barrier that that you noted that cities can actually opt out of. It's very very unique in the U.S. There's very few other places where you can opt out of a law. (laughs) But... um, yeah, we're seeing more and more Colorado communities opting out just so that they have the ability to look into building a municipal network. That doesn't mean they're going to build one. They just want the opportunity to really fully explore that and see if it makes sense. Because previously under the law, they they couldn't. They couldn't even think about it. Absolutely. And many of these communities are are uh, moving forward, including uh, in Boulder County. Uh, this month, the Boulder City Council is having active conversations about uh, developing uh, uh, municipal uh, broadband expansion. So uh, absolutely. And, and DMEA is also a leader. You know that co-op that you mentioned on the on the western slope is a is a leader in um, in community-based uh, uh, electrical generation as well, and um, you know and they're out there south of Grand Junction, you know, in a very rural area, and they're they're delivering their members faster speeds than we're getting in you know the startup hubs of Denver and Boulder. So it's it's pretty remarkable what the uh, 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 what this can look like. Um, we're going to uh, take a little break. You've been listening to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. And uh, we're here with Hannah Trossel, Research Associate with uh, Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KG News. It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider. I teach media studies at CU Boulder. I'm joined by Jason Weiner, a local co-op lawyer. 
Uh, we'll be with you on the fourth Thursday of every month, as always. And, and today we're talking with uh, Hannah Trossel, uh, Research Associate with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And we're talking about strategies for community broadband, ways in which uh, uh, jurisdictions, cities, and, and, um, and counties, as well as uh, cooperatives, uh, can uh, provide broadband internet service in a way that's more accountable uh, to the people uh, that um, that they serve uh, than a lot of the models that have tended to dominate. And I think this conversation is particularly important uh, with the um, uh, apparently the end of uh, net neutrality coming from uh, uh, policymakers in Washington and the FCC in particular. And it seems like this rollback of net neutrality protections has spurred a lot of fresh interest in community broadband um, Hannah, I wonder if you could say a bit about how uh, that shift uh, from Washington has changed the nature of your work at the ILSR. Are you seeing people uh, more receptive, uh, becoming more receptive to community broadband alternatives and, and co-ops in particular? We really are. We're seeing a lot of focus on municipal networks. We're seeing a lot of focus on how we can control um, our Internet service. Um, as much as possible on the local level. Um, we've seen a number of cooperatives make statements saying that they will protect net neutrality. Um, but the most important part of any co-op is the members that control it. So as long as the members feel very strongly about protecting net neutrality, then they will encourage the co-op to continue protecting those values as well. Do you think it's too much to suggest that we'll look back on this moment and think that it was pivotal in as much as the repeal of net neutrality rules and what feels like a dawn of um, new business model, new community organizing? Do you think it's too much to say that we're living through a pivotal transformation at this time, and that community broadband will seem like more of a mainstream option? I think we're always living through sort of these pivotal transformations. Um, I definitely think community broadband will become a more mainstream option. Cooperatives have already become very mainstream. Um, people have gotten their internet service from telephone co-ops for ages. And now that electric co-ops are also entering that space, that is going to going to really be a way forward. And how do you see that opportunity uh, play out as between rural communities, underserved communities, uh, and urban uh, corridors? Well, actually, I would like to turn your attention to um, Morristown, Tennessee. They have been trying to form a partnership with the Appalachian Electric Co-op there in order to serve the rural areas surrounding the surrounding the city. Um, there, the way that um, co-ops are often structured is that they serve rural suburban areas that surround sort of a um, city core, and, but they don't actually serve the city itself. Often the city has its own electric utility. I've seen this in Oklahoma, Tennessee, um, Georgia. Um, they're really fun to look at on a map because they just kind of look like donuts. And 
previously, um, we had this problem in Minnesota with the way our broadband program was structured, where we gave a lot of money to co-ops, but not a whole lot to cities. And so we would create these donut holes where the great connectivity was actually in the rural regions, but the um, those little micropolitan cores weren't getting any um, any new service. Tell and so it's really important to form partnerships between the cities and the co-ops in order to make sure everyone is actually getting a high-speed internet service. That brings a, us to a really important part of the discussion. We mentioned earlier in the program uh, your involvement in the Indigenous Connectivity Summit and Indigenous Communities Nationally. Tell us a bit about uh, what the ILSR has studied and found with respect to those communities and how they're working toward greater connectivity, uh, both within their communities and beyond their communities. We're, we're really just starting um, with that. The, there are a number of tribally owned networks. Um, I think there is on the order of uh, 10 or 12. What I found very fascinating, um, especially in Oklahoma, is there are electric, electric co-ops that are actually providing internet service to um, my tribe, the Cherokee Nation, um, their businesses. And so there's um, a great partnerships beginning to form there where we're building new ways of creating high-speed connections um, between these very disparate um, sort of groups. This has also been noted in um, Minnesota with uh, Paul Bunyan Communications. They are a telephone co-op um, based out of Bemidji, and they've started to serve um, fiber to the home on Leech Lake. And so finding ways to build that out that is respectful to the um, Ojibwe community there that controls the, the land. Um, so we're, we're beginning to see a lot more of these connections being formed. And it's pretty awesome. Absolutely. And this, I think the connections are so important because there is such a history there. You know, as with the, the uh, um, uh, pre-existing telecom co-ops and uh, uh, these sorts of things, you know, you know the 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 co-op uh, that we were just hearing from earlier in the show, you know, dates back to 1906. You know, way way back, uh, and um, uh, and uh, and and also these these efforts to connect indigenous tribes is uh, you know these go back to the days of dial-up. You know, and uh, I think now we're at a moment where we need to recognize and appreciate what has already been built and what we have to build on, uh, not just the chance to do something very new. Uh, so that kind of connection and that, that elevating and, and visibility work, um, I think, is so important. I would also add that um, Indigenous peoples have been really great at building their own building their own networks, forming forming these connections, finding ways to get um, high-speed internet service. Now, what what role do you see for um, 
uh, kind of smaller scale neighborhood scale uh, networks to to play a part here. You know, there's been some interest over the years in things like uh, neighborhood mesh networks where you have people's routers talking to each other and kind of uh, uh, giving each other uh, access to internet services of various sorts. Um, we've just seen uh, the rise of one such network in Detroit in an underserved urban community. Um, there's been some of that in New York City as well and in, in the Red Hook neighborhood. Um, do you see uh, uh, that sort of development as part of this picture? Is there a chance for something kind of similar to how the, the energy sector is becoming decentralized through rooftop solar uh, for, for uh, uh, internet service to become uh, much more decentralized than it has been in recent years? I, I think they're a great part of this ecosystem of high-speed internet service. They're trying to fill in a, a need and every, like you can pretty quickly learn how to build a net mesh network um, from some pretty limited resources. I think they're a great, um, not stopgap measure, but a great addition to the municipal network space, the co-op movement. They're, it's very exciting to see them. I'm trying to remember the name of the um, network in California. Um, this tribe had built, had started out building um, a network like that, and eventually it sort of moved from sort of this hobby network phase, this really run by like the neighborhood and the community, to um, a more like professional uh, network. Uh, it's the Matt Rantanen runs it. I'm trying to remember. Apologies. Not at all, but I'm sure we can uh, share resources about that. And and I believe you you uh, discussed that also on your your podcast, uh, building local power. Is that a place that people can go to to learn more? Yes, building local power is a great resource. It goes over the entire scope of the Institute for Local Self Reliance and really connects all the different initiatives from broadband to energy to compost to independent business. It's now, excellent. Yeah, great, thank you. And and we've uh, talked about some of the uh, barriers and, and the, the, the kind of fear that can arise around the idea of, of providing uh, local internet. Can you give a, us a sense of how listeners might think of themselves as getting involved? Um, what are some steps that people can take in their own communities uh, for helping to develop uh, more accountable uh, internet services uh, uh, for them and their neighbors? I mean, if you're involved, if you're a member of a co-op, you can go to the co-op board meetings. Um, co-ops always have a really fun annual meeting with um, usually food and events and prizes. Um, there's here in Colorado, all, our, our electric co-op meetings have uh, a robot uh, as well. <laughs> <laughs> that is an, that is excellent. Um, I would also say that um, if you're involved with your city in any way, just showing up to the city planning meetings, uh, especially the ones around. Um, economic development, those often end up discussing um, the lack of connectivity. Um, this, there are just so many different ways to get involved depending on your community. 
And it's really about connecting with like-minded neighbors to get something going. Great. Thank you so much, Hannah. And, and I, uh, again, recommend that everyone check out the resources that they've been building over at the ILSR. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, uh, today. And, and uh, we look forward to, uh, to seeing uh, your work develop more in the future. Thanks. It was great to be here. You've been listening to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. It's a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle that airs on the fourth Thursday of every month on this station. I'm Nathan Schneider. I teach media studies at CU Boulder. Uh, I'm joined by Jason Weiner today, uh, who is a a local lawyer and and co-op advocate. Um, We'd like to thank our guests, uh, Hannah Trossel, the research associate with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and uh, Vince Kropp, CEO and general manager of PC Telecom, a telecom cooperative uh, here in in Colorado. Uh, This show is part of uh, a range of broader efforts uh, in the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. We're uh, uh, doing live events. Uh, we uh, have some new uh, uh, groups forming around worker co-ops and and uh, food co-ops and other kinds of models. And and uh, we're really uh, eager for uh, for more participation, for more people to come in and and uh, uh, tell us what what you want to learn. And and we can put events and radio shows together. You can reach us through our website at uh, coloradocoops.info. What's so exciting about the study circle is uh, that it's just a community coming together to explore topics, to better connect the resources and expertise in the state. And uh, it's so exciting to see the effort of organizers and activists and economic development folks and just plain community members from all over the front range coming together to explore what uh, community organizing and cooperative business is all about. And we've covered such an interesting range of topics from uh, co-housing and investment clubs. We've covered worker cooperatives, uh, multi-stakeholder cooperatives. Um, It's just such a fun space. And of course, uh, lots of great company. And uh, it's nice that there's uh, food and, and it's in the evening. So most folks should have no trouble getting there. Great. And, and um, I also want to note that uh, we now have a date for this event uh, we're putting together in October at, at CU Boulder. Uh, it's, we're, we're talking about it as the Colorado Shared Ownership Summit, and it's a joint effort between my College of Media Communication and Information and the Business School at CU uh, to bring together cooperators from across the state and build strategies for strengthening this sector Uh, across the region. And so please mark your calendars for Saturday, October 13th. Um, uh, For more information about this and other upcoming events, uh, please go to coloradocoops.info. Share uh, uh, this show uh, as a podcast as well as a radio show. Uh, You can find information on the website, uh, feeds uh, uh, for where you can subscribe and so forth. Uh, Please spread the word about what we're doing here. Uh, We appreciate it very much. Uh, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to, uh, to the conversation again next month. <music>